for those who don't know me, my name's Vin. Uh, you might see me here oft more often, who knows? If you don't want me here, too bad. Um, you're going to wonder why uh, my face looks like this, but the words that come out of my mouth sound very strange. Keep wondering, and I'll just leave it there. I'll explain it. But open up to Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, and I'll explain. Okay, so Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. As you open up there, I'll start off with this. Um, I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. Uh, I've been in Canada for nine years now. You know, but uh, for an Australian, there's an unspoken rule in life, which is, if it rains, stay indoors. The goal is to stay dry because rain ruins lives completely, <laughs> destroys whatever it is. Australians are terrified of the rain. Don't worry about the seven killer animals in Australia. We don't care. Rain is worse. Don't get me wrong, before moving here to British Columbia, I was warned way in advance about the rain and how living in the middle of rain, it just feels all sort of crazy and chaotic to me. I don't know what to do. From moving to a country that avoids the rain like the plague to now a province that completely embraces it, I'm, I'm confused as ever before. To see people in British Columbia go about their normal lives here with the rain. Your normal lives. How you, we all still go out and get exercise. You put on your little raincoat for your kids, the rain boots, you go out, they let them play, get muddy. None of you are, none of, no one's worried that they're going to drown in the rain. Look, I don't know, especially with the last couple of months, how the amount of rain has been. I cannot fathom and I don't know now when I see people, when I drive and I see people walking, exercising, walking their dogs and their kids to the park, I don't know if it's freeing or delusional. Because <laughs> songs like singing, singing in the rain don't exist in Australia. Look, there has been a lot of rain, but I have to keep in mind, just like we all do, that even though that the rain can seem restrictive to my life, the truth is, like all British Columbians... We can live and experience a full life even with the rain. So the question now is, in regards to the text I will read, is what do we do then with the Sabbath? What do we do with all its rules and regulations? Is the Sabbath meant to restrict? Or is the Sabbath meant to be for us as Christians to live a full and free and flourishing life? life. Can you still do that in the midst of that rain? So Luke chapter 14 verses 1 to 6, I'll read it for us. It says this, one Sabbath when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees that were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. 
So there are two points I want to make out of the text. So just two, and that is, first point is stop watching. The second point is start living, okay? Stop watching, start living. Let's go to the first point, stop watching. Verse 1, you see that the gospel author, Luke, he sets a particular scene for us. He tells us right from the very beginning, this is of great importance, that this event occurs on the Sabbath. Okay, then the topic of the Sabbath in relation to Jesus has come up quite a few times already, leading up all the way to chapter 14. It's come up twice in chapter 4, twice in chapter 6, and then also in uh, chapter 13. You see, in chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, Jesus heals a, uh, a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Then in Luke 13, 10 to 17, he heals a woman with a disabling spirit. So she's bent over and he heals her on the Sabbath. In Luke 14 here, this is, uh, this is the third and the last healing recorded that happens on the Sabbath. And in the middle of all this, in Luke 11, 53 to 54, the gospel writer tells us that they have been, the Pharisees have been waiting for Jesus. Like waiting, they're going to wait and set him up. Set him up for him to say something wrong, unlawful, that they can, you know, punish him for a crime, but they're going to set traps for him. So why did, now the question is, why did the Pharisees make so much of the Sabbath? That's a question we've got to ask because There are other rules that they can trap him with, right? But they decide the Sabbath is the one that we're going to use to to trap here. Look, it starts off in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, in the creation story, after God creates the the heavens and the earth. This is what happens in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so six days had gone past, six days of creation. We're told that God rested on the seventh day from all his work and then he made that day holy. He set it apart, he elevated it, he exalted that one day. The six days of work were sort of these ordinary day-to-day stuff and that seventh day in resting, he set it apart, he made it holy. And he rested, which is interesting, right? Because God was not tired. He didn't need to replenish his strength. He did not need to sleep in order to recover. The idea was that God was satisfied in the six days of what he had done. And so on the seventh day, he would rest. He would look upon all he had done and see that it was good. Just like when you and I finish mowing the lawn. And you're looking at that. Except for those who have allergies. And what's interesting is God rests, but Adam is not called to rest. Man was not called to rest then and there. God rested. But what then eventually happens is sin enters the world via Adam. The days now, this day of rest, the created order of all things, the day is now no longer about the creator, but about the created The days are no longer about looking at the created world and universe and thanking the creator for making things that are good. And then Sabbath, after Genesis 2, is not mentioned again. Not until Exodus 16, verses 27 to 30. 
So many years have gone by and then it's mentioned. And it's the first time in Exodus 16 where Israel is called to obey the Sabbath. And I'll read it for us and it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none, that is bread, and the Lord said, or food, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So part of the context of that is Israel just came out of slavery. Okay? They've been slaves in Egypt for a very long time. God then, as they go into the wilderness, God gets them out of Egypt. They're free people. They're in the wilderness. And God supplies their need, which is they need food. So he applies food, bread in particular, But on this particular occasion, he reminds them, hey, listen, I'll give you food. I'll give you bread every single day. Day one, day two, three, four, five, six. But listen carefully. On the sixth day, collect bread for that day and for the next. Because the next day, you've got got to rest. You've got to do nothing. And it's also important important for us to realize that, you know, when you look at this commandment against the backdrop of Israel and the nations that, that, that had conquered them and the nations surrounding them and the nations that were going into and into war with, no other country or nation had such a rule. No other. Just Israel. No one was called to rest on the seventh day. And add on top of that, in Egypt, the slaves' worth was measured when they were slaves in Egypt. The slave's worth was measured how? In what they produced. If they couldn't produce enough bricks, they got punished. If they couldn't produce enough bricks, they were considered worthless. So brick after brick, the Israelites got drilled in them that their value came from their output. That's not foreign to you and I, is it? Because you and I define our work and what we produce. We get more money, we get elevated, right? Right? Your worth, your value is in what you do and what you can bring. And yet in Exodus 16, this is their first taste of freedom. From slavery to the wilderness to walking, he there says, rest. The question is now, they have that freedom to rest to do what? To do nothing? Well, of course not. The day of rest was for them to celebrate that God had saved them from Slavery. It was to celebrate the mercies of God, the goodness and graciousness of God. That was the point of it. That as they remember they eat the bread on that seventh day, like, wow, we didn't have to work for this, and yet we are given bread to enjoy. And so, on top of all this, when we get to this scene or get to the area when Jesus comes, the Pharisees had written by this time now 39 articles or 39 rules in order not to break the Sabbath. Okay? So let me put it to you this way. That imagine with me this. Imagine the, ball, uh, the, the Bible, sorry. Imagine the Bible had a law informing you and I that it is unlawful to put pineapple on pizza. Because it should be. <laughs> so imagine the Bible says, I restrict you to put pineapple on pizza. Look, it would start off simple enough. That would be a commandment that the, God, the, the Lord God of heaven and earth gave to us. But over time, as humans, in order to prevent us from breaking the law, we would come up with other laws not to break the original law. Am I making sense? So let's take this thing further. 
in regards to pineapple on pizza. In order to be on the safe side of the law, we'll start to think, okay, what do we do? How about we mandate our people to not even touch pineapples, just to be safe? As time goes by, the unraveling of it all happens. Let's take it one step further again. How about we just tell the people, you can't eat pineapples at all, just to be on the safe side. That's all I'm doing. But let's take another step further. I've got a great idea. Let's, okay, let's just, just to make it easy, just so no one's tempted, let's not even grow pineapples. We'll, we'll no longer allow farmers to grow pineapples. And let's take it another step further. Let's add another law and just say, okay, okay, listen, just to be on, let's, we've got to be safer. Let's just not add anything sweet to pizza. Okay, I've got one more law. Maybe we need to consider banning pizza altogether, just to be on the safe side. So can you see how some of these laws have come to be? The Pharisees, if you think about it, they're not crazy after all. If anything, I think they remind, they should remind us of you and I. We'll put law or rule and this, do this, do this, so that we don't do this. The idea, even within our culture, we say things like prevention is better than cure. So to summarize, by the time Jesus enters the scene, the Sabbath and and all of its laws were well established. And on top of that, the Pharisees believed that if they obeyed the strict Sabbath laws, that it would bring about the promised Messiah. So you could add all these, all the history of it, and then the Messiah itself, that if they obeyed, if they were good Jews, and their obedience would bring the salvation of Israel. So you can see the tension here. So that's why the Pharisees are watching Jesus, like how? Strictly because they know this thing crumbles and the Saviour won't come if Jesus comes and breaks the Sabbath rules and laws. So they're watching him like a father who has daughters and when the boyfriend comes over, you watch, both eyes open. I've got two daughters, so I know. So, so much is at stake but Jesus comes in the scene and then messes things up. And Jesus comes in the scene and says things like, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man, that's him, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So if Jesus is who he says he is, then he must mean, that, that this must mean he knows what the Sabbath is really about. And this is going to turn things upside down for the Pharisees. But since the Pharisees do not agree with Jesus' assessment on the Sabbath, they invite him still over for dinner in order to catch him breaking the law or to say something against the God of Israel. So once they are there, and as you read further on, you start to see the social order, the rituals of cleanliness, of the strict diet, the clean food, You'll see that it was observed strictly. The food was prepared the day before. That was seated in a particular place. Only, it was only by invite only. So if you look at it, because the rest of the half of Luke 14, Jesus attacks the bunch of rituals. 
your seating order, your honour and shame culture, all these things. He's, Luke spends that time in, in, in Jesus, talks to them about it. Okay, so the scene is set up. Now we move into the details. Because in verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Okay, so some commentators are suggesting with the man with dropsy that was there, um, when he uses the word behold, he's drawing your attention to this man just sort of comes out of nowhere, but he's presented into the scene. Now, what's interesting is the Pharisees most likely would not have invited the man with dropsy over. Why? Because... He's sick, he's diseased. This place of this dining experience was only for the special. For invite only, yet he's there. So we're direct, our attention is directed to this man with dropsy, the man who's being used for someone else's pleasure. Now, dropsy, also known today as edema, is basically swollen, very swollen limbs and tissue that result in sort of excess body fluids. From what I've heard, medically, it's quite painful because it's the stretching of, you know, from skin and all that. It hurts. Your feet are swollen. Nothing fits. Like, it's, it's not good. But in uh, Jewish religious custom, it was seen as a punishment from God. Punishment and judgment for those who were in sexual sin or for those who were gluttons. And remember, dropsy is visually in your face. It wasn't like a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. You can, you know, you can sort of hide that. But having everything swollen, you stick out. So all eyes are looking at this man and nothing else. And in verse 3, we are told then, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay, so even though nothing is said by the lawyers and the Pharisees, but from previous times and within all the gospel narrative, we know that Jesus knows their thoughts and their actions or their motivations. Jesus responds to them by asking them a very, very simple question, which is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The day has been the day. So as soon as he asks this, you have to understand the Pharisees now have to conjure up a whole bunch of things. So when it tells them and asks them, Do you, can I heal on the Sabbath? The day that has been exalted by God out of the six days, the seventh day that is made holy, that is good, that is exalted, that is set apart from every other day, the day where your ancestors were told not to collect bread but to sit and rest and to enjoy what was given to you, is that day. That day that you've written 39 rules to keep, is it lawful to heal? So the question itself raises the tension now between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is what they came for. This is part of the setup. This is perfect. Like a scene in a romantic movie where the boy finally builds up the courage to tell the girl that he loves that I love you. And the boy comes in and says, I love you. I've always loved you. And you all sit there waiting for the girl to respond. But she says nothing in return. And for those who enjoy rom-coms, that's a disappointment. But for those like me who hate rom-coms, oh, that's funny. (laughs) It's disappointing for many, but entertaining for me, for us. The term that Jesus used, this lawful, is not used as a legal term, but rather the question is, the question is best framed is, is the act of healing on the Sabbath permitted, proper, or authorised? 
That's what he's asking. Is it, is it right on this day, the day that you've elevated, the day that you put the 39 rules together, the day in the wilderness, that day? He's asking, can I do this? So can I heal? Can I show mercy? Now, the Pharisees know in the 39 rules, the 39 articles, there's no actual Sabbath law that would permit it or not allow a person to heal and the Greek word for heal is care, serve, attend to. So is it, is it wrong for me to care, serve, attend to another person who is in need? So can I do this? The Pharisees can only answer yes or no, but it gets them into trouble, which, no matter which way they answer. If they say yes, you can do that, Jesus. It's permitted. We will allow it. If they say yes, then there are issues with their tradition and their view for every, and their view of the law. So everything they've you know, not allowed the people to do, and if they say yes, then it counters all that. Discounts it all. Everything that they've mandated comes now into question if they say yes, everything. If they say no, you can't do that, then it tells the people then, stand, then doing good and showing compassion and mercy on the Sabbath, yeah, don't do So no matter how they answer, they look like fools. And that's why in verse 4, we find out that the gospel tells us that they remained silent. They can't answer it. They're stuck. Their response is complete silence. The word silence in Greek is fascinating. The gospel writers use this word because, yes, it also means silent. But it also means, in the translation, also rest from work which indicates when in their silence, ultimately, when Jesus asked them this question that they should answer, need to answer, when they come up in silence, that the Pharisees would rather be right than righteous. This is what I mean. I don't know what it's been like here, but for the last two years, COVID's been really tough. Don't worry about pastors. I'm talking about for family and friends. The amount of counselling that I've had to do, our church has had to do, in regards to family and friends who will no longer talk to each other on the view of COVID. Just sort of view. Masks, no masks, passports, no passports, vaccines, no vaccines. How many did you get? Friends and family, no, lo- no longer talking to each other. It's been two years. The problem for you and I is, and everyone that in regards to this topic is, We fight to be right, but we never fight to be righteous or reconciled. You and I would rather get our point across and to be correct in everyone's eyes, but we never fight with that same passion, conviction, and the same eagerness to be righteous and reconciled with all those around us. We would prefer to be right and to lose everyone along the way. That's what's happening in the day with the Pharisees, but that's also happening in our day. I have not bought a Vancouver Canucks jersey. If or when I do, when I put that jersey on as a supporter, what I'm saying as a fan is that I'm for the team even if we never win the Stanley Cup. You and I can disagree on who gets drafted. You and I can disagree on who gets traded. You and I can dislike the manager, but you and I are still on the same team. 
You and I are not enemies with a team even when we disagree. Church, let's fight to be righteous. Let's fight to be reconciled. Why? Because the gospel calls us to that. Because Christ himself reconciled us to the Father by what means? Through the cross, through his death. That's what he did to reconcile us. If he gave you what you deserve, be death. So church, let's stop watching. Let's stop watching. Let's stop watching people break rules at church. Did they bring their Bible or not? Did they dress appropriately? Whatever it is, to be the rule keepers. Let's stop watching the world burn itself down. Let's not look at the southern, you know, our cousins down south and think, oh, just let them go at it. Because at least we're safe here. And think to ourselves, oh, well, you know, because the great news is even for us as Christians, we can view the world and let it crumble and burn and destroy itself. Because why? Because we come to the conclusion, well, I get to go to heaven. So I escape, they won't, but we will, good. No. We've got to be part of, not part of the problem, but let's be part of the solution. The solution is very simply Christ. Jesus then, still in verse 4, takes the, the man and heals him and then sends him away. It's an interesting and quite intimate term, the way he has taken this man. Because the Greek term is the term of arresting or seizing. Don't think of it as something bad has happened. He's, you know, Jesus the police and arresting him. No, no. It, the idea, the imagery he's trying to give you, the gospel is trying to give us, is this idea of physical contact. Jesus touching the man whom no one was allowed to touch. That's the idea. Because back in those days, if you touched someone who was dirty, you know what happens? You become dirty. That was the understanding, culturally. But then Jesus touches this man and he's made clean. How is that possible? And Jesus does it willingly, lovingly, compassionately. And I want to sit on that because, look, um, for those who grew up in the church, um, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? John chapter 11, verse 35, which says, Jesus? Jesus wept. It's short, but it has so much depth. Let me explain the compassion of Jesus. Think about it. When you and I see commercials on TV about starving children in the continent of Africa, when we see stuff like East Hastings, we just drive by, when we you know, think about even now coming from Abbotsford, like the, 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 the floods feel like a distant memory, even though all the houses, people still don't have their houses, but we've moved on. The Texas shooting, 18 children or 19 children murdered will shed a tear. But you know what happens? In our corruption, with our compassion, we move on, do we not? It will hurt for a little bit and then we'll move on. Because you know why? Because we've got more important things to think about. You've got your job to think about. Maybe a recession is coming. The federal government, the federal bank is thinking about raising right interest rates. That, that, that's a game changer for many of us. There's other things, there's sports, the playoffs are on. But Jesus, in all his deity, in all his sort of God, godness, but in all his humanity, can look upon a man with dropsy or any other corruption in the world and feel the weight of it all and what sin has done. 
When Jesus weeps, he looks at Lazarus and what death has done to that he has loved and made and created and he sheds a tear. He weeps. Because sin doesn't corrupt his emotions like you and I. You and I move on, but he sits there and he feels the weight of it. And there, so when he sees this man with dropsy, the compassion fills him and draws him to heal this man. There's mercy there in the air. So church, we're going to stop watching others burn this whole thing down. We do have to show compassion and tell people about the compassion of Jesus. We've got to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of the corruption of this world. Point two, start living. So you had stop watching, start living. So we've got to live out the things that we have seen and heard from Jesus and do likewise. So verse five, after the healing, he sends him away. Jesus sends the healed man away and it doesn't, doesn't make him stand there. If you look there, he said, "Go, hey, which of you? Sorry, in verse five, he gives this situ- illustration. But before that, Jesus sends the healed man away and doesn't make him stand there in front of the Pharisees which would have been a great continued illustration to be a continued reminder as the conversation continues. Hey, stay there while I keep talking to them because you help with my teaching. No, but he sends him away. I believe what Jesus is doing is he's telling this guy, look, you don't belong here. You know why? Because they're just using you. You're healed now. Go, go celebrate that thing. Now it's time for the big boys to talk. Jesus gives the Pharisees this very particular scenario. He tells them, okay, listen, which of you having a son or an ox has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So he's saying, look, you got a son and an ox. A son, think about a son. If he falls down a well on the day of the Sabbath, your son, your flesh, your blood, the child that you have named, the child that you have raised, that there was a son that you deeply love or an ox. An ox during this time would have been a source of income for the people, for anyone. In a, in a place in town where agriculture was the main thing, ox would have been the source for the entire source of income for the entire family. He goes, what, what would you do? Wouldn't you immediately? Yeah, because he's saying, he's saying like, you would immediately save the son or the ox. Why? Because he's saying you wouldn't even think about it because you, you need those things. You love those things. You would immediately save without even thinking. Let's put it this way. It is illegal to jaywalk, is it not? But if you saw a child run out to the road, would you not illegally walk onto that road to save the child? Of course you would. But we've made the, they had made the Sabbath into something that it was not. J.C. Ryle, 19th century bishop in Liverpool, England, puts it best. When he talks about the Sabbath, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, for his benefit, not for his injury, for his advantage, not for his hurt. The interpretation of God's law respecting the Sabbath was never intended to be strained so far as to interfere with charity, kindness, and the real wants of human nature. So what Ryle means is that on the Sabbath day or any other day of the week, Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. See, back in Luke chapter 13, the story is sort of the chapter before 
you know, before our reading, in verse 14, in, in Luke 13, 14, one of the rulers of the synagogue asks a really good question, really good. And the question is, okay, Jesus, there are six days for you to heal and that work can be done, but why don't you come on those days and heal this, this woman? Don't do it on the Sabbath is what his, his cry is. So there's six days to heal. Why don't you come on those days? But why do you have to heal on this Sabbath? Good question. Jesus, why not wait until tomorrow to heal? Let's just do the Sabbath thing and the next day let's heal. Good question. The question, but the problem is this. Look, we first learn of God's mercy in the story of Adam and Eve. After the fall, after they sinned, the very first thing Adam and Eve do is be, uh, make clothes for themselves. The clothes are not very good. And what we find out is Jesus then covers their shame with skins of a sacrificed animal. We find that in Genesis 3 to 21. He does that. Adam and Eve deserved what once they had eaten to fruit? Death. What does God do in his first act? He shows them mercy. He clothes them. He doesn't kill them. And we've got to know the difference, especially with mercy and grace, because grace is I get what I don't deserve, and mercy is I don't get what I deserve. They deserve death, and they didn't get it. They got something else. They got grace. So Adam and Eve, even though they deserve death right at that moment, but what they received was a garment and life. That's why when we look upon the cross, it's an act of mercy. Like a judge, when you and I commit a crime, whether it be a speeding offence or something more severe, when we stand before a judge, we know we're guilty. You know when you stand in front of a judge, you feel completely helpless, do you not? You don't know what the result will be. You don't. You're already guilty. You know you're guilty. Now it's going to be what the sentence is. And the other thing is going to say and shame you or whatever it is. But imagine that Jesus steps in right in the middle of that court scene with the judge about to sentence you and he steps in and says I'll take the punishment I'll take the wrath that's mercy you deserved it Nancy Gibbs who wrote this quite a few years ago in a Time magazine column and she was a Christian she says that over time Sunday has gone from a day where we could do only a very few things to the only day where we can just about do anything we want. The US is too diverse, our lives too busy, our economy too global, and our appetites too vast to lose a whole day that we could be spent working or playing or power shopping. The article is, is quite long, but the basic, when she gets up to this point, what she was saying is she remembers a time, she says. Maybe you and I can remember as well, but she says she remembers a time in North America where Sunday all shops were closed where nothing was open and you were sort of forced to spend time with family and friends and eat and enjoy nature and, and, and whatever. But now that everything's open, what's happened? Now we're too distracted, we're too busy, we've got too many things to do and shop and we're going to prepare for the next day. And blah. That's what she's saying. And she's saying all oh, this is sort of reversed and we're, we're sort of encouraged to do more on a day of rest. Shop more, do more, you more. It's no longer about celebrating the mercies of God and showing mercy. It's about the individual and the individual wants and it remains that way to this day. Church, can I encourage us that on a day like this, hey, on a Sunday, what a rare, beautiful day, go take a nap. 
Enjoy the mercy of God. You don't deserve a nap. And the rest, tomorrow when you go to work, you get, do you think you get to nap on the day of work? No. Enjoy the time to come home and, 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 and do a meal with your kids. Get them in the kitchen. Do, laugh, joke. Have a glass of wine. I'm sorry, glass of wine. We're Christian. We don't drink. Let's not go there. But you understand? And that's, that's what, let's do these things. But let's celebrate God. Because I know, the danger in this is I know that right after the service, you already got plans. You've got things to do as soon as this ends. But there is more to the Sabbath than the absence of labor. There is also the presence of worship. So going back to the very beginning about the Sabbath. So was the Sabbath implemented to restrict us? No. We have the freedom to worship our creator, the freedom to cherish his mercies, and the freedom to find our rest in what Jesus has already done through his life, death, and resurrection. Thank God for his mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks for your mercy that we don't get what we deserve. Because we deserve punishment and death, and yet by your cross, the stuff, the thing that we deserve. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. Heavenly Father, uh, on this day, on the day of rest, when we can find rest, when we are called to rest, Lord Jesus, help us to use it wisely, not to do nothing but to worship, to celebrate, to enjoy the life you have given us, a full life, not a life defined by rules, but the freedom that you have achieved for us by the shedding of your blood, that we can come before your throne and we have full confidence to come before the Father. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Thank you that on this day that we can celebrate your glory for our good. Amen.